John left off. So if you guys uh, would like, please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. And I will actually be picking up in verse 6. I'm not going to read the, the first verses that Sean went through. He didn't make it through uh, all the verses that he wanted to make it through. So I'm just going to pick up where he left off and hopefully be able to cover uh, bits and pieces of what he was talking about as well. 1 Samuel uh, 18, 6. 1 Samuel 18, 6. And it came to pass... As they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, very angry, um, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed, or the word here is, envied David from that day and forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. As always, Lord, um, we want to submit to you right now, as Ivan was saying, we want to commit our hearts to you, commit our minds, commit our emotions to you, just for uh, the short period of time as your message is preached, Lord, that we could hear, uh, not what I have to say, who cares about my opinions or what I have to say, Lord, but let us be um, intent on caring about what it is that you would have to say to all of us, including me, this morning, Lord. Uh, so, Lord, I commit this time into your hands. I commit my uh, message into your hands, Lord, that there would be no vanity, Lord, but it would be entirely given up to you for the edification and encouragement of the church. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, well, this particular event, in all reality, is we've been... Uh, going through uh, the first book of Samuel as we've started up until this point. Um, in all reality, as we get to this point, uh, we see more than anything else, we see a manifestation, really a manifestation of the life of Saul. Saul has been from the very inception of his kingship, a man after his own heart, opposed to God's heart. He is also a man of the people. A people who feverishly demanded that Israel have a king like all the other nations. So the Lord told Samuel, the people are not rejecting you, but they have rejected me. Saul was made a king opposed to God himself. But let me remind you of something very important, that God is king regardless of what value is placed upon him by sinful men. I hear well-meaning Christians tell how they made Jesus the Lord of their life. You know, and you hear this quite prominently today, especially in American evangelicalism, where a person makes Jesus Lord. Uh, but the reality is, is that, I hate to break it to them, but Jesus is Lord whether they make him Lord or not. He is Lord over their life, whether they ever repent and come to faith. He is still the Lord. He is still God. 
The Bible says in Psalms 24 that he owns everything. And that means all of his creation and all the inhibitants of the earth. No one's outside of his control and no one's outside of his power. No one makes Jesus Lord. He is Lord. And we submit to that reality. We can be rebellious in that reality, but ultimately at the end of the day, you go your own way and and, and stay in your rebellion and hatred towards God. But I'm going to tell you something. He is still Lord. And you'll realize that either in heaven or in hell, he is the ultimate sovereign God over all things. From the moment we see Saul enter into the pages of Scripture, we are introduced to someone who starts his mission as a failure and ends it the same way. He lost his father's donkey, donkeys. He made threats against his own family. He pretended to be fighting when he was hiding. He would rather kill his own son, Jonathan, rather than apologize. He wanted to be the priest when he should have been at war. He wanted to read the roles so he could find a way to ridicule others for fighting while he wanted to look important. Then, of course, his sleight of hand trick by allowing a child to go and fight Goliath when the situation demanded that he do it. Choosing rather to be a coward than stand against evil. But now, as we have read in our text today, songs are being sung with spinning, static, dancing women to our renowned hero, David. And a cursed melody towards Saul, declaring to him like a funeral dirge that he and his kingdom are finished. Was this song insulting on purpose? We've got to ask that question. Were these singers just being nasty and disrespectful? Remember, he's the king. Remember, these words do have meaning, and these words are going to land, right? So what was their purpose and intention of even singing a song like that? By the way, who was the choir director? Who was the worship leader that put together that song, right? Well, here's what we're going to sing when we get out on the streets. You say, well, that can't be true. It can because they all were singing it together. They wouldn't have known what each person was going to sing unless they had planned this song. And you know this planning. Why did they plan this? Because they knew the great exploits of David because they were coming to their ears. They didn't have social media back then. They just had word of mouth. And this was traveling virally. As David not only defeated Goliath, he was overpowering the Philistines in battle as well, campaigning with Saul up until this point. He had established a name for himself based upon his actions, not on his performance. Big difference here. One side of it is where someone wants to um, manufacture something to where they always want to be important. They always want to be seen as the hero, but they're not doing anything. But yet they want the applause, right? Well, Here's God has ordained it in such a way out of the mouths of singing, dancing women, spinning around them in circles, all excited in his face, singing a song that was really leveling him and really confronting his lost kingdom. In 1 Samuel 24, 6, um, it talked about David's exploits. It says that the Lord... Uh, even, I mean, when we think of the exploits of David as, as even went beyond this portion of Scripture, 
Um, we know that you know even David in his in his in his furtherance of the kingdom. You know, as David was made king, we know he's anointed by Samuel secretly. I know Saul didn't know this, but Saul was bringing him into his favor, all ordained of God. And slowly but surely, David's kingdom was being revealed at the same level that Saul's kingdom was being decreased and diminished and dissolved. These were happening uh, side by side as both of them were going together. But look at even what David said in 1 Samuel 24, 6. He said, the Lord forbid that I should do this, do this thing when he had an opportunity to kill Saul. It might have even been justified in doing it. God had put Saul right in his favor to remove Saul for his murderous threats coming against David, which was clearly wrong. But notice the difference in the heart of David. Number one, he's not trying to be famous. He's not trying to be seen. Uh, everywhere we see him in scripture, we see him as he's obeying, he's being the errand boy, right? And he's going out on the battlefield and he's giving people their, you know, their, their rations. And it's such a subservient thing for a leader to do. But also says that he took care of the livestock as his father asked him to do prior to going on this mission. David was about his father's business right from the beginning. He wasn't a show off. He was out in the middle of nowhere, you know, and he learned his, how to fight in battle by dealing with all of those things that God allowed to teach him, as the Bible said, become a man of war. And this is exactly how David was trained. But through this type of training and through this type of relationship with the Lord, he developed a deep humility to God. And this is starting to show that this is the kind of leader that Israel needs. And, and Saul ultimately was paving the way for David's kingship, but really didn't know it and became ultimately deranged and obsessed to the, to the point to where he ends up taking his own life. I mean, it's a beautiful position when a man of God doesn't use his position to destroy others. Even when he has the opportunity to do it and may be justified. That's pure meekness, what I see. I see someone who has the power to do something, but instead restrains because of a maturity, um, but also experience and seasoned uh, leadership will do that to a person. Is that it trains them, is it in my best interest to do this right now? Is it in my best interest to say this right now? Can we refrain? Do we have enough self-control to, to, to be able to function in a capacity to where we have maturity where we're not always fighting for positional status and attention and fame, but we're content and we're humbled that God has even got us in a position where we are, where we don't have to win every argument. We have to win every fight. We don't always have to be right. And guess what? It's okay to compliment others. It's okay to lift other people up. You know what that does when you do that? It shows that you're not insecure of your own leadership. When you could tell another man, you've done better than me, you know what? You are definitely in a better place. You are far more. Don't be afraid of that. All that does is exemplify and boost your own leadership because people respect that when you are humble enough to know that you don't even deserve to be where you're at. You're not entitled to, to be there. Uh, you're not a superhero. You're not a king. You know, you should just be more. You should be humbled. 
that you even get to do what you're doing and not be afraid of giving yourself away to others. Complimenting someone else doesn't take away from your value. It adds to your value. And also it adds to your sanity as well when you can just say, hey, you know what? Um, it's okay to, to honor other people and, and have the meekness not to go, ah! You know, jump in there as soon as you can and try to turn the story around because you have a better story, right? right? And you've done more. And you're, oh, wait, you're the senior pastor. You know, you need to be doing this and that. You know, we don't operate that way here. And, I, and I'm not going to keep pointing it back to myself. That's not how we operate. There's no one in this church, regardless of elders, who think we are special. We're not special at all. We're just humble people that God chose to put in this position at this time. For whatever reason, he can shut it down whenever he wants. There's nothing that I am that makes me any better than anybody else. Um, I'm just grateful to be up here, and I'm probably the biggest screw-up in the church. So I am happy to be up here by God's grace, but I'm certainly happy to do something else if he chose for that for my life. Um, God is in control, and God can do whatever he pleases. But we must remember here, it, it, it was envy is the reason why Saul had devoted the rest of his ministry to obsessively hunting down David and turning on anybody that would keep him from regra- regaining his power. You've got to understand, envy is a silent killer of many, even many in the church. You see, when you, when you are um, in a place to where you are envious of another person, or you might even be jealous, because they're, they're really twins, really. Jealousy and envy are very close together. They are a little bit different. But if you're that type of person who struggles with a superiority complex, and you are very have a difficult time, where you feel like others are in a place where you should be, and then you secretly harbor envy towards them, you know what it turns into? It turns into bitterness. And when bitterness gets a hold of you, it's very difficult for you to function healthy, not just at church, but in your own family life, uh, at work, wherever you are, if you're harboring bitterness, you are a plant producing poison wherever you go. You're certainly not a budding flower, right, with the fragrance of Christ. You're a poisonous milkweed that just destroys everything in its path. And this is what we don't want to be. We want to be careful. And this is the point of this entire message. We'll deal with as we go. And I will get through this. Um, um, so, you know, I want to really deal with this area of, 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 of envy, of envy and, and striving and not being content, but understanding the wickedness of what can happen if we allow ourselves to fall into the same sin as Saul. Well, it's easy to point the finger at the guy who has committed adultery or the person who has murdered someone. What about those who covet another person's positional status or secretly plan to destroy another person by way of slander and gossip? Jesus put it like this in, in Luke 12, 15. He says, Beware of all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If the word of the Lord needed confirming, there are enough miserable rich people in the world to prove that a satisfied life does not come from having things, even power. Even power. 
the outward symptoms are pointing to an inward issue of the heart. For Saul, it really was an issue of rebellion. And, and uh, Samuel, had, Samuel had said to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 23, he says this, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Now I'd like to break down these verses and look at the theme that's being proclaimed out of the word this morning. Uh, let's take a glimpse at what is happening during this event and see how these verses relate to our lives today. I've extracted three points from this particular event contained in these texts. Number one, if you're taking notes, jealousy and envy versus humility and contentment. Number two, having a good reputation versus performance-driven idolatry. And number three, having an enduring, fervent ministry versus a short-lived ego trip. Number one, jealousy and envy versus humility and contentment. These points, obviously, as you all know, we could go on and on and on just in a series alone. And the subject of these points are so such a wide range. But I'm going to limit that uh, because we don't have a lot of time, but you'll get the point. Saul was basically, as we know from reading from the moment he came in uh, on the scene, uh, he was jealous of anyone that took away the spotlight from himself. And as we're going through the life of, of Saul, we're looking at these points, I would ask you, if you would please, just to take some moments, as I have as well, even this morning, really examining yourself and see if you fall into any of these categories. Uh, because you know what? There are portions of these that we probably all fight with every single day of our lives. Let me just say this morning, I do. I fight with these things. I fight with some of this stuff. I fight with envy. I fight with jealousy sometimes. I fight with different things. I look at bigger church buildings. I look at different things. And sometimes I do find myself envying those things or jealous of those things. I will see things. I will look at other pastors. I'll look at other things. And I'll see things. And I wonder why, Lord, why can't this be us? Why can't this be me? Right? And there's times that I fight with those things. But at the end of the day, I recognize that I'm not content. I'm not realizing the many blessings that we have right where we're at. And that's the problem with coveting, right? That's the problem when we want something better all the time. We're never happy with what we have. And we miss some of the greatest opportunities in our life because we're so busy looking at greener fields than realizing how blessed we are with what we have. I mean, there has been more growth in this church. I'm not even talking about numerically. More growth in this church spiritually than we've ever had in six years. There are more solid believers in this church, more scholarly men in this church, more godly men and women in this church uh, than we've ever had. And the stability of this church has never been in a place that it's been today. And I believe it's with the men and women who have come into this church within the last year and a half have made this church what it is today. Let us not forget that. Don't start wandering around trying to look at other things and comparing ourselves. But let us be content with what we have. Say, oh, well, are you just content because it's, it's just, you know, it's just 
we're begging for scraps. You content with that? My point is that we're not begging for scraps. My point is, is that we've got some beautiful relationships here. I've got a family that I've never had before. A church family that I've never had before as close as this. I've been to many churches. I've been members at churches. But I've never had the intimacy that we've had in this church like we have today. And I think that's those things that could be easily missed if we're not, if we're not aware of these types of things. The disciples were that way at times. Read Luke chapter 10, 17 through 20. Jesus sent them out to preach in the city. And when the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus answers them this way. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So you can go on with all your demonology, right? The reality is, just forget, you may see the demons, but I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He said this very kindly without being a jerk. But he says it in a way that adds power to what he's going to say next. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Even parents fall into this sin in their obsessive search for their children's success. We've all seen it, right? Been a part of that as well. Look at Matthew 20, beginning in verse 17. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with their sons, kneeling down, <clears throat> very proper, very godly, and asking something from him. Jesus, as he always is, is so kind. He says, well, what do you wish? So what she asks is huge. She wants Jesus to commit right now to declaring James and John will sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand in his kingdom. In this area, the closer someone was seated to the king, the more power that person had in the kingdom. James and John, though their mother are asking Jesus to make them the most powerful men in his kingdom, second only to Jesus. And obviously we know we're not, I don't believe that they're pointing to the eternal. I think they're thinking that Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to conquer the Romans, right? And take his position with, you know, the, her two boys on each side, you know? And ultimately I get it. I know a mom's heart. Her mom wants her children to do well. What mom doesn't want to see her children succeed? But this question, right, was, was, uh, was really appalling in a lot of ways as we read that. And we can see how we can all fall into the sin. Before you start saying, oh, I'm the worst person on the planet, you know, also remember the disciples, even a mom, fell into these sins as well. And we got to be careful that we don't. I'll digress. Back to our text. 1 Samuel 18.6 says, Now it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine. You know, I'd like to stop for just stop for one second and I'd ask you to take a moment, just take a moment and consider what's happening. Right? Consider your own self. Uh, remember, it may be something just happened recently, something in your past, but do you know what it feels like when you have experienced a victory in your life? Or a major victory in your family? And, 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 it, and it just happened. 
and the feeling of exhilaration that goes on in how you feel, right? You're elevated. Something happens to you chemically, right? Inside of your body, endorphins are rushing to your brain. You feel a sense of, uh, you know, almost this climb to ecstasy. Like, this is unbelievable. We, 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 we. We saw the Lord accomplish this and we never thought it would happen. And, or maybe a certain besetting sin in your life, a secret sin that you have, one you keep tripping over. And now you saw some success in that, you know, where you couldn't get a hold of this thing or get delivered from this thing. Now you've gone two weeks and you haven't been involved in this. And you start feeling a sense of exhilaration that overpowers now a, a sense of wanting to return to the garbage. There is, a, there is a sense of exhilaration when, when, when you have just come from a major, major victory. And this is what's happening with David and Saul as they're returning. I mean, David just destroyed Goliath in front of both the Philistines, right, in front of Israel. Major turning point that has happened here. Plus, he's on a campaign, right, fighting and getting a name for himself. Not because he's out there going, Saul, look at me, look at me, Saul. He's out there just fighting because he loves the Lord and God has taught him how to fight. And that's all he's consumed with. He's not consumed with how much notoriety he's getting. He's consumed with doing what the Lord has called him to do. And people, people can feel that. People can feel that and they can see that in their leader. And this is why it says when, when Saul had made him this leader over the army and the whole army recognized him and were now grown affinity towards him. They loved him. They liked him. They wanted to follow him. They could relate to him. He was just a, a fighter. Jonathan himself was his best friend. What drew him together? was our military prowess. It was, it was, it was their, it was, they, they both had something exceedingly in common, that these men were warriors, and warriors are drawn together. People that fight in battles, they're just glued together. And there's something, this is why you see every year, you see these World War II veterans, Vietnam veterans, Korean War veterans. You know, my, my, um, my uncle was in the Korean War, lost his entire battalion. He was the only one that had lived and suffered greatly uh, from PTSD and, and nightmares and night terrors and um, all these things that he said had went away once he started meeting with these groups every year. Come hell or high water, he was there. He did not miss those times with his buddies that he was in the cold, snowy, icy trenches with and they were dying. Those that were still left... Right? Those who were released in his acquaintances were still left. He would meet them every single year because he knew, we know, that nothing draws people together like battle. And I know even with the church, we should do the same thing. You know, we're, not all in, we're all in separate battles, but we all battles. Our battles shouldn't divide us or separate, separate us or put us in different categories. Those battles should draw us together like war veterans with that same love. And that, that same uniting and the same understanding. Brings us to the second point of, well, actually the first point um, is dealing with the whole um, idea of just, you know, the whole idea of being jealous and, and being envious and, and, and versus humility and contentment. And he, after he deals with them and, and the woman herself, 
Um, and then it comes back to where now we see the exhilaration of David. And then we see him coming back from the slaughter of the Philistines. And we see that David was ultimately accepted by the people. Um, and I honestly believe that there are signs that prove a man is called by God. And there are signs that a man is not. You know, no matter how hard a person tries to earn the respect of his people, if he's not involved with the people, if he's not at the same level with his people, if he's not relatable among the people, um, there's probably a good chance he's not called to that particular office. And it does happen. It happens everywhere. People get called to something. Remember John, I think it was John Maxwell says, it's great to get everybody who's called on the, on the same bus, but it's also equally important to get them in the right seat. And sometimes we don't see that. We see a person that may have a lot of giftings, but he just doesn't seem to be functioning very well in one capacity or the other. But the church can resonate with individuals who are called into leadership. Not only does the pastoral elders recognize it as well, but the church does too. Even with elders in the church, they do have a sense that this guy has definitely been called to the Lord or this guy just isn't called to the Lord. Is that okay to say that? You know what I mean? I think it's a biblical thing. I think, it's, I think that's exactly, you know, what we see. Um, in this case, the fervor of David uh, to the people was extremely hot. He crushed Goliath, and from there, he continued along with Saul in the complete overthrow of God's enemies, the Philistines. David was returning home with Saul at the completion of the Philistine War. The Bible highlights the removal of Goliath as the greatest achievement of David's life. Not just in the destruction of Goliath, but in the decisiveness of the battle itself. Not only in the sense that he destroyed Goliath, because we all love to look at that point, right? We love to say, wow, he killed Goliath. But you don't understand what else was at stake here. Um, this was a decisive battle. I mean, the outcome of this could have been extremely tragic. Israel here was being weighed in the balance and found wanting. This battle, if gone in the wrong direction, would have placed Israel into the hands of their enemies as their slaves. A picture, if you will, of the gospel of Christ. When Christ comes and destroys the enemy of sin, and when he sets the captives free. But here we see the harassment of the enemy. It knows no bounds. The giant cried out in 1 Samuel 17, 9. He says, if he is able to fight with me and strike me down, then we will become your slaves. But if I prevail against him and strike him down, then you shall, became, shall become our slaves and you will serve us. This is what's weighed in the balance. There is no neutrality here. This was either the end of the Philistines and their total ruin or the end of Israel and their continual victory. And it seems to hear implied that, I mean, that this was the case and the ultimate outcome of why Goliath was even destroyed. Jesus said in his word, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So in reality, because of Adam, because of Adam's fall, we all became 
enemies of God. We were all slaves in a spiritual sense to the Philistines. We had lost that battle. We were in complete and total slavery. We were dead to our sins. We were a slave to sin. We were a slave to unrighteousness. We were a slave to our perversions and our lust and our misconduct. These were who we are. As the Bible says, we were once darkness. This is exactly who we were until Christ came in under his own sovereign power and his own sovereign choice at his own sovereign time to save us, to pull us out of that darkness, grant us life in his son by giving us a new heart and a new spirit and causing us by his power to follow after him and no longer have to follow after the wicked one who so evilly, evilly slaved us for so many years. The victory, this victory catapulted David into fame. And he was now the most respected man in the land. And this happens anytime someone steps up in the face of evil and does something about it instead of looking for attention and respect and never applies any action. One thing to sit up here and talk about all these things, but yet never do it. One thing to hear these, be, these words being preached but never taking any action. If you ever read Jeremy Burroughs' book, he's a Puritan, wrote a book called Gospel Worship. He said in the congregation, there are those who are unconverted that were addicted to hearing hard sermons against sin and the sovereignty of God and hell and wrath. They were addicted to it, but they're unconverted. You know, be careful that we aren't getting intoxicated with Paul Washer. Right? Or getting intoxicated with these preachers. You know, I heard one conference that Paul Washer preached at, that at the end of the conference, there was a line all the way around the building to get his autograph from Christians at a Reformed conference. You know, I, I just find it totally just completely an abomination. Giving all, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think it's a problem if someone wants someone to sign their book, Okay? But the problem is, is that we are exalting these demigods. We're making idols out of preachers. We're running to these conferences right. to get high, to get intoxicated with people. Right. You know what I mean? And then we just spend all of our time just drowning ourselves in these preachers, which are fantastic preachers. We should listen to them. But you've got to be careful. You're not giving them too much credit than they deserve. You know, just like the Puritans. I love the Puritans. But also, I know there's a fine line. Most of what I read, I've read a lot of the Puritans. They make me feel like they've never sinned before. It feels like that. When I read their stuff, I'm thinking, man, I'm not even worthy to ever even consider myself to be a Puritan. These guys are holy. They're godly. They write about all these things. They're devastating. They're powerful. They're prolific. They're, their books are incredible. Some of my favorite stuff. But I don't very rarely ever hear them say, I was a mess, or I was in sin, or I screwed up this whole week, or I did this. I never hear any of that. Not, I'm not putting them down because I love them, but I'm saying we got to be careful because what happens is they become our little Christ. We run it because they never sin, right? We look at them as if everything they write is, you know, infallible. Infallible? Yeah. 
But yes, we got to be careful in this whole idea of lifting up people to a, a wrong place in our lives and being consumed with this reality and put too much attention on a person and not taking enough attention to put on ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to do anything. You've made a decision. You're speaking volumes when you decide to remain silent. You're not silent at all. You're actually really loud when you decide, I'm just going to be quiet, not going to say a word. So he says, not to act is to act. Saul basically pushed his responsibility upon David when Saul himself should have been one, the one to fight Goliath. David, a mere shepherd boy, stepped in and did a king's job, and now he's being recognized instead of Saul, and Saul doesn't like it. People are going to gravitate towards real leadership, not pretended leadership. Seriously. His entire reign seemed like it was manufactured from the flesh creating an image of himself to others that he was leading while the whole time he was hiding and avoiding responsibility. And I know we just keep beating up Saul, but, you know, if we're not careful, even in your Christian life, you more resemble Saul than you do David in our lives. If you look at, just go through an inventory of your life within the last couple weeks, you know, look at your own behavior and some of the things that you've said about other people. You know what I mean? You probably said some pretty harsh criticism about others behind closed doors. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you have. But it's a good chance with everyone here, there's someone here that probably falls into that rank. And we, you know, we find ourselves doing this same thing where we want to look spiritual, but yet we avoid responsibility. And then we see that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet. And this is interesting. I want you to pause here. What does it say? King Saul. Did you notice it doesn't say that throughout a majority when it's written about Saul? Go ahead and back it up and look at the previous chapters. It's very difficult to find the word King Saul in there. You'll find Saul, Saul, Saul everywhere, right? Up until this point, you see almost a sarcastic, sense of this word being brought in there. Listen, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet Saul. Nope, to meet King Saul. King Saul! Here comes King Saul! Here comes our king! He is here! You know, this is kind of the idea. He's here! With tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang and they danced and they said, Saul has slain his thousands. And David has ten thousands. And by the way, these dances, if you if you didn't know this, were as a rule confined to women only. Right? These kind of dancing and wailing things for funeral dirges and different things were really confined to women. And this may this may be why David's wife was disgusted at him, as you read in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6, 12 through 16, which says David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And in 13, as soon as the bears of the ark of the Lord had advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. Then David came dancing before the Lord with abandon, 
girt with a linen ephod. David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and sound of a horn. David was dancing before Yahweh with all of his strength. But when Michal, the daughter of Saul, watched him from a window, she saw him leaping and dancing before the Lord. It says that she despised him in her heart. A couple reasons that could be. Number one, she's the daughter of Saul. Okay? So, you know, what's going on here? Sing about my, sing about my dad a little bit better than you would. David, this isn't right. Or, or number two, she was just saying, hey, this was a woman's thing. Stop acting like a girl. Out there dancing like a little girl. You know, such a manly guy like you. You know, dancing around like that. It just looks very humiliating and very embarrassing. You know, it's one thing that we got to remember. David's, Dave, this is a point that's quite well taken. And I have to bust through this really quick, guys. Um, is that it's okay to be undignified before the Lord. It's okay. It's okay here. As long as you're not rolling across the floor and doing a bunch of crazy stuff and running around the building and all this stuff, no. I mean, we already have decency and order within the body of Christ and during our services. You want to shout amen, you want to holler, you want to, you know, get into it. No one has to remain silent, right? Just enjoy the service. Shout to the Lord. I don't care, right? Lift your hands. During worship service, you're not going to get in trouble for lifting your hands. You can lift your hands. Amen. I'm just saying. That's, I mean, there's a lot of churches out there. I mean, it gets to the point where they become so spiritually constipated that you can't even do anything. You can't do nothing. You know, you can't raise your hands. You can't, you can't move. You know, and it's like, I don't see that in Scripture. Yeah, I see a very godly, godly way of doing things. And I'm all about order, trust me. If I saw the spooky stuff, I'd put an end to it very quick. But the point is, is that, man, we have to have some freedom, right, in, in, our, in, our, in our worship services. Now, I have to say that, like, you know, there are, you know, disclaimers there. And you guys know me well enough now, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But I would say, you know, we have to be willing to be undignified before the Lord, right? It's okay, right? So, anyway... David was not trying to be like a girl, but instead broke out in an unrestrained way to show his love for the Lord and need not worry about the traditions of men. These uh, women who were singing and dancing hit a note that was not favorable to Saul. The note was so offensive uh, that they were singing about David's successes over Saul's. John Gill says that women in, <clears throat> excuse me. women in general, their nature is more expressive emotionally than men. When a, when, a, when a major victory was wrought, they would break forth in singing and dancing. Beha- behavior that could only be accomplished by women. What do you mean by that? Not saying that men can't dance, obviously can. Doesn't mean that men can be emotional. But as you guys know, right? We're built different than women, right? We are structured different than women, right? Women are structured different than men. men emo- women emotionalize things. Men are more visual, right? So there's an emotional reality to weigh the equipment in which God put into women that they are generally more emotional than men. 
this could be the reason why, at least towards John Gill, that they were dancing in the way that they were dancing and shouting and singing. I think it's a beautiful thing. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And this is where, you know, we have to understand that um, this particular song came about at a certain time in history, in the um, career of Saul as another instrument used by the Lord to declare to him vocally that it's over. And usually that happens, I'm going to tell you something, it usually happens and the people recognize it as well. They can usually tell a slow, subtle fade that they feel out of touch <clears throat> with the leader and feel like at a given time that this leader may be gone. It's felt among the people. So when they're singing this out loud, they're not being jerks, they're not being pretentious, they're not, being, uh, they're not purposely trying to aggravate him, they're just being honest and being truthful in what's going on. Sometimes we just need to be truthful and honest to what we see. Not worry about, oh, their authority, they're going to kill us if I say anything. No, there comes a time, even if you do get killed, you need to be honest. You need to be truthful when you see bad leadership and corrupt leadership happening right before your eyes. These were his people, right? These were the people he was supposed to govern, he was supposed to lead, right? They were supposed to follow him and love him and obey him and submit to him. But he's totally corrupt, and they started getting that to such a point to where they're singing about it in their songs on the street. Yes, it aggravated him, but so what if it aggravated you? What are you going to do, blame it on the singers? Because that's usually what a leader does when they're confronted with their sin or their behavior is that what they do right off the bat, they don't take personal responsibility for it. They'll say, yeah, that was me. I own that. I'm going to confess that. I'm going to repent that. Or I'm going to sit, up, sit down for a while and deal with that. But no, it's usually, what do they do? The first thing you confront a leader who's toxic. He blames. Saul probably was blaming the singers. You know what I mean? Probably one of them killed. Because he just didn't like the message he was hearing. Instead of going, wow, that hit right to the core. I really, he should have realized that the moment he put David out there to fight Goliath, the moment that he was in all those campaigns and David was destroying everything in his path and he wasn't, he should have realized that. He should have known all along that he was a failure and he messed up and deserved to be removed. But God in his kindness and in his grace was doing it slowly to giving him time to taper out of that ministry. But instead, he continues on. And with that, we're going to go ahead and pray because our time is limited because of communion and the meeting today. Let's pray. I'll pick up on this uh, next Sunday. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, let it penetrate our hearts this morning, Lord. How many times do I look at this and just look at Saul as a complete wicked criminal, but in my own heart, I have behaved the same way. Lord, humble us through this. Humble us, Lord. Don't make us greater scholars, Lord. Make us godlier men. Lord, help us to walk in a way that would please you and honor you. With every thought that we think, every word that we speak, and every action we take, let it be governed by your power and a mature spirit, Lord. Help us as a church, Lord. 
We just commit the rest of this time into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.